the value of your company is one of the most important aspects that you want to pay attention to. Today, we're going to visit with Debbie Douglas to talk about building value for the sale of your company, the key elements in the sale process. How do you get the top price for your company? And then what are the deal sweeteners that can improve results for the seller, even in the midst of this crisis with coronavirus that's affecting all of us? It's certainly affecting the value of our business. And if anything else in this time frame, you got to think through the steps of how do you get the most for your business? How do you put the value in? How do you enhance your company so that you get more dollars down the road and really begin to lay that foundation that I want to sell in three to five years? Stay tuned today for all this and more on this edition of Let's Make Work Optional. Welcome to this episode of Let's Make Work Optional with True Wealth and Company in Overland Park, Kansas. True Wealth and Company incorporates strategies and products of the super rich to help you reach your financial goals and make work optional. And now, here's Brian Sarf, President and CEO of True Wealth and Company. Good morning and welcome to the Let's Make Work Optional podcast. I'm joined today by the owner of the Douglas Group, Debbie Douglas, and we are going to talk about building value for sale in your company, key elements in the selling process, how to get the top pricing to sell your company. And then we're going to throw in a little piece here about deal sweeteners that can improve results for the seller. Welcome, Deb. How are you today? I'm fine. Thanks. Great to have you here and great to visit with you on another edition of our podcast together. Good. Likewise. Just trying to help business owners get more money for their business. They spend their entire life building their company and growing it. And then they have to go through a leadership transition phase of either selling to family members selling to employees, or the most of them are going to go to private equity, I think. Right. And a fair number, right. Or a large number go to private equity, and they're right. trying to get top dollar and how to navigate that process, and you're just the person that they need to call <laughs> to figure out how to make that dance. There you go. Because it's complicated. It's not simple. It's not it easy. Is. Kind of frame a little bit about the Douglas Group of the types of businesses and clients that you work with okay. uh, to kind of frame uh, where your expertise is coming from. Okay, our clients really are a pretty wide range of industries. Our roots probably came from manufacturers, a lot of manufacturing companies, metal and plastic manufacturers, but it's a little bit broader than that these days. Our clients are not real small. They're typically at least 10 million in sales, mm -hmm. up to a couple hundred million. Okay. They're kind of what the classic mid-sized company is. Sure. Some of those companies are in various stages of development. Some of those companies are just really beginning to blossom. Mm. And owners want to take advantage of that mm -hmm. without taking the company through the next painful <laughs> five stages. <laughs> yes. So it works well. Yeah, it does. It gives them a chance to turn around and get some liquidity and go build another one. So let's talk through these key elements of enterprise value and how to build in preparation for sale. Okay. And talk about the four elements of building value for sale. Okay. Well, the elements that we've identified kind of begin with some kind of look at the people mm -hmm. mix in okay. the company. And the people mix might include a variety of considerations. If you have a manufacturing operation, you may have a number of technical people that are absolutely critical, that are really important. In almost every case, you have a number of marketing people. Mm -hmm. You also have administrative people, the financial controller and all of that department that are doing the administrative stuff in the company. And what your strengths are in each one of those segments can make a big difference in the pricing you're likely to achieve. So 
owners spend a good deal of time really kind of looking at their mix of people and what the strengths and weaknesses are. How do they make sure with the people they have that they're going to stick around after a sale? How do they uh, work with them? Because the owner can't tell them they're selling. Right. But to gain some confidence that my group, my team is going to stay around through the transition to the new owners. Right. And it's never a sure thing. Mm -hmm. It's never a known factor. But most employees look for opportunities as the owner exits to maybe broaden or expand their role even greater Mm -hmm. for the new buyer. So we don't have a lot of experience with significant losses of people Mm -hmm. upon the date of sale. That's great. People always worry about it, but most people are kind of eager to establish a new go-forward potential. So that's not usually as big a problem as as it's feared to be. That's great to hear because I hear a lot of uh, business owners are thinking about selling. That's the first thing they worry about are You know, that's really their extended family or all the employees and all the staff and everybody else that works for them. They just want to make sure there's continuity in their lives. Well, and one more comment I would make. If the owner is beginning to consider sale, he does not want his employees to know that he's beginning to think about that process early. That's how you lose employees. Mm -hmm. When the sale is announced, employees are usually kind of curious and eager to establish a new role with the new company. If they are looking forward to it six months in advance, they're going to be far more hesitant and tenuous. Mm -hmm. So it's better to keep it very quiet. Once you let the cat out of the bag, they're going to want updates and questions, and you're not going to be able to provide answers, and they're going to assume the worst. That's just human beings are that way. And they're going to fear it. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Talk about intangible technologies that companies may have and how they get those key elements through to make sure that they get full value for those when they're selling to a new owner. Right. And some of those technologies are protected by patents and Mm -hmm. real technical protections that go forward that make it very easy. In other cases, we have technologies that are very important that are just guarded secrets Mm -hmm. for the company. And that's okay, too, but you have to keep that very proprietary and very guarded. We had a, a client at one time who had a product that was very guarded, and then he ended up having three different categories of employees who knew about their piece of the product. None of them knew about the other. <laughs> so it was very difficult for it. No one employee could have left and duplicated that, that product. Smart. Yeah, it was smart, great. Yeah. It was interesting. It was. You had to keep that quiet. Right. Talk about how they position themselves in the marketplace. Well, the competitive environment can be tremendously different for different kinds of companies in different fields. That competitive environment can have a big impact on what the company value is going to be Mm -hmm. on sale. In some instances, the company may be the leader very clearly in one particular segment that makes him really dominant. He also might have Uh, contractual relationships with certain customers or with certain suppliers that also protect him very well mm-hmm. as it goes forward. So those elements really can enhance value very significantly in possible sale. Well, and that's an important piece that you bring up is your customers are certainly going to be concerned if there's a sale. Your suppliers are going to be concerned if there's a sale. All the vendors that support your company and then all the contractual relationships you have and all right. the, what, everything that's been drawn up with all of your attorneys of how to make sure that transfers and that there is confidence from the perspective of the customers and the suppliers. It is important. And I will tell you that most of our clients don't have a lot of contractual relationships in those things. They have protected technologies that are somewhat proprietary, that they haven't shared that information very broadly. But usually they don't have the benefit of a a firm contract in place. So it Mm. becomes pretty important to kind of protect it and guard it. Secrecy. It really does. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. You have here how to get top pricing. So we're looking at in the selling process to get top pricing. Talk through some of the key 
points that sure. are important to you that have been important in the business sales that you have helped to broker. Right. And maybe tell a few stories in here as you go along to help kind of paint the picture for our listeners. Okay. First of all, I would tell sellers in every case, you're going to do so much better. If you have a third party doing the sale for you, it's just not something you can do in-house and keep it guarded and secret and confidential as you go. It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a firm like ours or in some cases, people just use their law firm or other confidential advisors that they trust. It really helps to have a third party doing all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, having a brain trust and a command center that's not at your place of business, that's somewhere else oh, yeah. where you can have whiteboards and papers and research and phone calls and all of the notes and all the thoughts and all the opportunity that are organized in somewhere that's not in your office because right. your employees are going to see it. People are going to be around and you just can't lock a room. And right. hide everything in there. And it's good to have a place to and have somebody like you that's in the middle of that who is helping to advance that sale of that company right. to and interested it's, parties. It's time consuming. I mean, I, we will typically mm-hmm. spend probably 500 hours mm. before we've gone to the first buyer with a, a non-disclosure in place that we're really talking in detail to. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. To fit into your spare time. <laughs> yeah. And run their business yeah, at the same time. Yeah, while you're running time. a business. Exactly. Yes. And especially when you're when you're working with the types of companies you work with, right? They're not small. They're not two or three people. No, we're h- not. hundreds of people, right? You know, tens to hundreds of millions of dollars in sales, and you had a lot of moving parts. Sure, it does. And bringing somebody in. So talk about setting Processing. prices. Yeah, yeah. These first processes. of all, yeah. you don't want to set a purchase price, and, and why yet is owners that? have a tendency to feel like they have to. Why? Because you'll lose a lot of buyers very quickly because you misstep. You set that price too high. Mm-hmm. Or, alternatively, if you set it too low, you're never going to hear a word. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to say, oh, my goodness, that's too low. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to look at that. <laughs> right, right. So it really pays to not set the price, to make the buyer's set price. Buyers will begin to set price. And there are times when we have one now that when we're in the middle of a deal, we've gotten a number of very aggressive prices. And we'll have a buyer who comes through with a bid that's silly. That's half of what it should be. In those cases, we'll then go back and say, you know what? (laughs) You need to double or triple that, and then we can talk, but otherwise, go away. Mm -hmm. And they understand that, and it causes them to enhance their bid significantly. Mm -hmm. Also, the other thing that owners sometimes, if they're doing it with one individual or an outside advisor, they don't think about is how soon you get that signed non-disclosure in place. You don't want prospective buyers chatting with your employees. Yes. About the possibility of Or your customers. Or Or your your suppliers. That's right. Yes. So it's really important to get that signed non-disclosure in place very early. The advantage that an intermediary has in getting that signed non-disclosure is that they don't have to provide any information about the name of the seller before they get that. We get a signed non-disclosure with just a client number. That's a nice Mm -hmm. advantage for us. We don't have to be probing about XYZ companies specifically and run the risk of them talking to somebody. So it really helps to get that NDA in place very, very early. That's super important to keep that so quiet because word travels quickly. As soon as anybody hears that somebody's selling, you start hearing some rumblings in the marketplace or they tell their employees or they tell a couple of people there and nobody has a non-disclosure and then the cat's out of the bag and then it ends up in the newspaper and it's just not pretty. Well, and as buyers begin talking to a seller, they will want to visit 
they won before they do a thing. Mm-hmm. We don't let buyers visit, and most professional intermediaries don't do well, that. You, well, you wait till the end till you have your handful chosen, don't you? Right. To, to invite them to actually tour the facility and come in and, and yes. see and, and visit and talk with them. You will usually invite more than one. Okay. We'll invite two or three top contenders to come and visit at toward the end of the process when we think we've got really a good handle on who we want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And when they come, they'll come as if they're a new prospective customer or something like that, just visiting, touring the plant. They'll tour the place of business and then go off-site with the owners and us to have the real discussion off-site. Mm-hmm. But they don't get to see the company until then, and we never have more than that two or three companies who mm-hmm. get to visit, sure. which really helps a lot. Yes. I mean, it's very hard to control confidentiality if you have a constant touring set of people. Well, going especially there. if you have a proprietary process. Right. And you have a lot of patents in place. Sure. That you don't want to have 20 or 30 people nosing around your company. That's right. And you don't want to have your employees upset. Your employees will get worried. Oh, yes. They will pick up. They'll begin to worry Mm -hmm. about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't pay to have them worried. Employees usually react very well when the sale is controlled and announced as it's completed. You have very few employees that you lose if you announce one day it's done. Mm -hmm. Here's your new owner. If you announce it two months ahead of time, you will lose people. Mm-hmm. they'll be afraid. Yeah, they're going to start shopping around to say, where can I get a little right. bit more money somewhere or, else? Yeah. Or a little safer, mm-hmm. not in transition. People worry that a buyer will come in and get rid of people. And they very seldom do, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, they need them there. They need yeah. their connections. But people are afraid of that. Yes, they are. Talk about the letter of intent and the key elements of that letter of intent. The letter of intent that a buyer would submit without any guidance often is pretty vague. It might include a range of price. It might not be very rigid about how much of it is cash versus how much of it is some kind of deferred payment. You don't want a letter of intent like that be accepted by a business owner ever. Mm-hmm. You really want to get it very specific as to the price, the terms, the dates, when is it going to close, how much is cash, how much is notes, and if some piece of it is notes, what are the securities for the notes? Mm-hmm. What are the employment terms for the exiting owner? I mean, we've had buyers submit proposals where the owner had to stay for five years. Mm-hmm. That's silly. Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> or if they do, they want the freedom to exit. Now, we've, we have had owners that have been stayed for a long time and have been very happy with new buyers, but they didn't make a commitment up front to stay for a long time. They sure. lived with them and found out that they liked them and they enjoyed it, and it went on for a long time. What percentage, if you can estimate, do owners stick around after the sale to continue working in the business? Probably a pretty small percentage. Many stay for six months to a year. Okay. And so... That would be that's common. over half. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's common. Our experience is probably 25% or less decide to stay longer term. Mm-hmm. Most of them will go on and do something else. What I find is that when you've built a company and you sell to somebody else so they come in, you built it because you didn't want a boss. You didn't right. want anybody to report to. That's truth in and many cases. Then you begin to report to somebody else and they're asking questions and they're trying to drive different KPIs for the business. And you kind of lose some of that independence and freedom as an owner. And so you begin to look for that next stepping stone for me. Work is usually optional at that point. Right. You don't need to work because you right. made the sale. But you still have your drive. You still love what you do. And you still have a passion to build. So you're looking for that next piece because it's really hard when you've not reported to somebody for a long time to now have to answer to a new ownership group. We've had a lot of owners go on and build new businesses afterward. 
And we've actually sold companies for the same owner. Mm-hmm. Here's three times now where he went out and built another one and came back to us and said, okay, I'm ready again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's neat. That's kind of exciting. That is they great, can do yeah. That, so. well, it's fun to have repeat. To yeah. Buy and sell, buy is. and sell, buy and sell. Uh, it's not something I ever expected, honestly. I thought sure. when you sell it, you're done. You're but done. there are people that decide mm-hmm. that they enjoyed it. What are the age of most of your business owners that you're selling companies for? Probably over half of our clients are surprisingly young. Mm-hmm. maybe in their 40s. Mm-hmm. So that makes it more likely that they're going to go out and do it again. It does. We do some that are, I mean, we've sold companies for guys who are 70-something years old. So some owners are much older and really have come to the point where physically they need to retire to be safe. Is it more difficult for an owner who's 70 to sell a company than 40? Sometimes when I look at money, it's not about the dollars. It's about the emotions and no, of, that's of really the individual insightful. The person. That's truth, yeah. And so what do you find? You advise differently with somebody who's 70 that's selling versus somebody that's 40. Yeah, I'm not sure that we advise so differently, but you're right. Their priorities are different, and what they care about is a little bit different. Usually by the time the 70-year-old owner comes to us, he's really ready. He's decided he needs to sell for some reason, so he's not too difficult. We sold a company out in San Diego years ago, and I had talked to that owner for fully 15 years. I really <laughs> had. <laughs> And finally sold. <laughs> yes, yes. And he was ready at that time, but it took a long time. He's now in his 80s. I got a Christmas card from him last year with he and his wife dressed up in some kind of, like he was dressed up like a girl and she was in some big party. That's awesome. <laughs> acting silly and it was really funny. So I can't believe he's now adjusted and mm-hmm. happy and taking it easy. But it took him a long time to really pull the trigger and make that move. It does. Yeah. Because it, it, it's, it's, it's so much of their identity. Oh, it really is. And to give that up and to make that transition to that next phase right. is, is really, really difficult. Right. I'm really pleased to see a guy that much older mm-hmm. who's taken the time to finally make the sale, yes. who really seems happy and mm-hmm. adjusted and enjoying life. So that's good. Well, and that's the importance of that next phase. That, yeah, yeah. You know, we work with our clients on leadership transition as part right. of our work optional formula right. to figure out what does that look like. It doesn't always mean that you're done working. Right. But it can mean that. It depends on what you want and where you're at and to build the phases through and what the options are to kind of understand it. Because most business owners, it's the first business they've sold for the majority, and they've never been through that process before. And to have a guiding hand to help them walk that path and navigate it well can uh, really do wonders for their mental health. In the cases where we've sold companies for the same owners more than once, Mm -hmm. where they've come back, the second time, they don't usually invest a lot of the proceeds from that first time. They don't take all of their capital and reinvest it. They start, again, kind of smallish. Mm Mm-hmm. Kind of do it themselves. Mm -hmm. But usually, the next play is a little bit bigger. They're faster at developing the company. The company's a little bit bigger. They can do things more quickly. Yes. So it's kind of interesting to see them evolve over time. It It gets bigger each time. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of fun Mm -hmm. for them. It is a blast for them. Yeah. Yeah. And then for them to see it successful, they go, man, I I love this. This is a lot of fun. Right. You have a note here about a definitive agreement. So what is the definitive agreement? And walk us through how to be really careful as we're setting those up. The definitive agreement is the purchase agreement, and it's typically anywhere from 75 to 250 pages long. It's detailed, it's lengthy, and it highlights all of the aspects of the purchase. Mm -hmm. We read those definitive agreements multiple times. I mean, multiple, like between 6 and 20 times, Mm -hmm. every word. And it's really important to go through that process and make sure that you're very, very cautious we have never had a lawsuit for a seller 
post-sale. That's incredible. That's really incredible. It is good. <laughs> it's That's a big really deal. <laughs> it's hard to get to that. Well, those are, they're distracting and they take a lot of time and they're no fun to go through. Well, our business owner clients typically would not have the tolerance to read through that lengthy, mm-hmm. detailed agreement yes. multiple times and make be very careful about it. Absolutely. So it pays to hire somebody who will actually take the time to do that mm-hmm. and actually go through and fix and change and articulate things in a way that makes it clear and safe. For the owner. Make sure you keep those proceeds. So a lot of flow charting, Excel spreadsheeting, writing well, everything out yeah. as you go through it. <laughs> we end up with comments sometimes on a definitive agreement that might be 20 pages of comments hmm. on one of these definitive agreements. Mm-hmm. Usually we're working very closely with the attorneys. Mm-hmm. Most of the attorneys, if they've done a fair number of buy-sell agreements, they're pretty smooth on it. They know what they're doing and they look quickly and they like having an outside third party help them. Yes. Somebody else who's looking over the shoulder of the deal. Mm-hmm. And it really helps. When we have a seller client sign a letter of, of intent, when we tell them, yeah, this is an offer that's worth accepting, mm-hmm. we will articulate all of the big things in the letter of intent, even before we get to the definitive. So the details about how long are you going to work for them and what allows you to get out and all of the details that are significant to the deal we're going to articulate in that letter of intent so that when it gets down to the definitive it's just a further specification of those same things mm-hmm. so that helps it improves the chances of getting done and it removes surprises sort of popping up right. down the road right you go well i right. didn't know you, i didn't know that was going to be part of the agreement that i'm going right. to have to agree to or that it was part of your offer right and yeah. usually when a seller signs a letter of intent the buyer requires exclusivity in other words, the buyer will require, when you sign this letter of intent, seller, you can't talk to anybody else. You're done. Well, that's a big, big deal. I imagine you strike through that one pretty quick. Yeah, we do. We yeah. fight it. Now, sometimes you have to. No buyer will proceed without exclusivity. So you have to take one. But then you want to make sure you're taking the one from the right guy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the right terms. You that's, know? that's where experience comes to play. Yeah. It's worth a lot of time and effort to get to that stage before you get into the definitive. Once you have that exclusivity, then you're locked into just that one buyer. That's and right. And you can't move to anybody else or entertain any, any, any other offers. And if that deal fails for some reason, something in the process mm-hmm. glitched before you got done, mm-hmm. if you open the door back up and go back to old buyers, they're going to say, wait a minute. What tell happened? Me you had a, yeah, what happened? You're not going to tell them what happened, but at the same time, they're going to be concerned. They are. They're going to be curious. Yeah. They're going to want to know. Yeah. yeah, they're going to be worried about, is this something that I might not find? Did they find something terrible about the company that I should learn about? Mm-hmm. So it's pretty sensitive. It is. Talk about some, how do you sweeten the deal a little bit to get a little bit more, to make it just a little bit better for a business owner selling a business? We've had several things that business owners have done, especially in cases where they're going to stay and be employed for a time, mm-hmm. that have made it really enhance the deal for them. One element might be just a, a simple retainage of a percentage of the business. You might say to the buyer, you know, I like your proposal, it's interesting, but if it were for 90% of the business and I kept 10, I'd like it better. (laughs) 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 And that may well be possible. Now, you probably aren't going to cash in on your small minority percentage unless the buyer resells, but most buyers do resell within a time, Mm -hmm. five years, seven years, something like that. Mm So then at that time, if it's grown in value substantially, what was a 10% piece may be worth three times what it was before. So it can be a nice benefit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have sellers who actually build a fixed bonus for certain things that might happen in the future. For example, if they've got a prospective new customer that could be very significant, Mm -hmm. 
but they it's not in the numbers yet. It's not showing up yet. They may say to the buyer, you know what? I want a bonus if that happens. Mm. I want a nice hefty percentage piece of that for the first year or two. Maybe it's the first year's profit mm-hmm. on that deal, on that customer. The seller gets in its entirety. And we've had a lot of those situations where the seller has gotten a nice bonus to the deal mm-hmm. afterwards. Usually they're not huge. They might be, you know, 5 to 10 or 20% of purchase price. But occasionally, <laughs> they're even bigger. They can be very significant. Well, especially if you've worked on, you mentioned earlier that you've been talking to somebody for 15 years. Right. And if right. you've been working on a big deal for a long period of time and you think it's about ready to close and you're That's thinking right. of selling, it's, you know. It's kind it of painful a, to just it took leave me a it. a decade yeah. to build this. Yeah. <laughs> and so if this sells in the next X no, number well of years, I want right. a piece of it. That's right. I want to get some reward for my time and effort I put in to build that for you because if it happens, it's going to be game-changing right. for the company. We can sell that well because we can also cause the buyer to recognize, you know, that relationship took a long time to get there. Mm-hmm. The benefit of the owner continuing to help with that a little bit is probably pretty significant. That'd be huge. Yeah. So the buyer will say, yeah, maybe that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad having somebody with all the that's knowledge right. of running the company still involved. That's right. Doing some business development. And sure. when you find, as a business owner, when you first started a business, there's parts of the business that you love. Right. And when you sell, sometimes you can step back into that old role that you did in the beginning that you really loved. And you're not having to manage all the people. You're not having to be the visionary. You can actually go in and do some of the work that you That's loved right. to do before and get some enjoyment out of participating in Absolutely that. Absolutely true. And well said. We've had a number of sellers that have stayed kind of long-term with the buyer because they did that, because they didn't like financial management. Mm-hmm. Give that to their CFOs or the new owner. Yes. I don't want to do that. You know, I want to do product development or I want to do some kind of aspect of the customer mm-hmm. relationship. And the buyers are real happy doing that because taking advantage of the owner's strongest skill set. We come into play sometimes for business owners. You know, we're wealth managers and, mm-hmm. you know, we do investments and things, but we also do a lot of advanced planning for right. individuals and families. And particularly for business owners, but a lot of times, you know, they got into business to build their business, not to sit down with their accountants and go through all their debits and credits and P&Ls and their balance statements to budget and do pro formas and read through all of their risk agreements for their insurance and their E&O and to talk with the attorneys and the business attorneys and buy sells and HR and benefits. They didn't get into business to deal with that, but then they find sometimes they've got 20 to 30% of their week are working on those items. And or worse, or more, yeah. or 50% or 70%. And they can really <laughs> slow them down. And so we can come in and offload that responsibility and step in as the quarterback in the middle, and we can take all those meetings and visit with everybody then help to organize and consolidate and simplify. And then when we get to a decision point, then we can bring the business owner in and save them all that time to say, okay, here are, we can do A, B, or C. We think B is probably the best. Here are the pros and cons of each of those. Which direction do we go? Then they think through it, they decide, and then we take it and run and get it implemented with their team. Then the business owner doesn't have to be that intermediary to speak Spanish with the accountant and French with the attorney and speak German with their insurance provider and then have to translate it to everybody else. Right. We can step in and speak all those languages as the interpreter, if you will, the quarterback in the middle of it and get everybody on the same team and organized and give that time to the business owner to go grow their company, to go build it bigger, to focus on the areas that really uh, charge them up. Yeah. And help them build a more valuable company. Sure. It sounds potentially very valuable, for, especially for owners that may not be 
as great at this or that element of the mm-hmm. <laughs> of the business management. Or they're not, or they're not big enough to bring a full team on yet. Right. But that's expensive to bring a full team in house. That's true. To do all those items, but it's important to have having a more organized business with everything buttoned up helps in the sale process. Right. When you want to sell, if you don't have clean financials and have your agreements and everything organized, it makes it a little more difficult to get oh, top yeah. dollar. Much more difficult. Yes, it was. Anything you want to add as we close out this podcast? No, it's nice talking to you. It's kind of exciting to hear some of the kinds of things you're doing with clients, too, to consult in that direction. I suspect it really helps them Mm -hmm. improve value. Yes, it does. Which is neat. That's the end game. Time is the one commodity we don't get any more of. Right. You want to spend your time doing the things you love. And what we love to do, a lot of times, are what business owners don't want to do. Right. And we love getting in the middle of that to help them grow their wealth, tighten up their risks, reduce their taxes, and improve their cash flow and their debt. And we'll get in the middle of all that, and the clients can go build their business. Yeah, and do what they love. So it's it's been fun carving it out. And I do love absolutely every time we get to visit and talk, and I look forward to the next time. Thanks for listening to Let's Make Work Optional from True Wealth and Company. I'm your host, Brian Sarf. With me this week has been the one and only Deborah Douglas. We'll be back next Tuesday morning at 5 a.m. Be sure to spread the word about this podcast to your friends and family, and don't keep us a secret. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, connect with us on LinkedIn, and don't ever forget, invest wisely, save early, give generously. Let's make work optional. You've been listening to Let's Make Work Optional from True Wealth & Company. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com or call 913-653-TRUE. That's 913-653-8783. All matters discussed during this program are for informational purposes only. This podcast in no way shall be construed as a solicitation to sell securities or advisory services to residents in any other state than Kansas or were otherwise prohibited. Topics should be discussed with your advisor prior to implementation. Advisory and insurance services offered through True Wealth & Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas.